the world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layer timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the update for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagic-design.com. Com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and I finally get to tell you who that secret interview I was working on is. It's Fred Raskin. Fred is the editor of Django Unchained, and he's also the editor of Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift, Fast Five, and Fast and Furious. Now... You're currently listening to the full episode. However, if you want to just hear sections of this interview, you can go to aotg.com slash cuttingroom and click on the Fred Raskin link. There you'll find a part about how he got into the industry. You'll find a section just on Fast and the Furious, as well as one just on Django Unchained and Quentin Tarantino. So, before I get into this podcast, I'd like to thank Jeremy Weinstein. I'd also like to send a thank you out to our sponsors. Without Blackmagic Design, we couldn't give you this podcast for free. Servers cost a fortune, drives, mics, you name it, it all costs money. Without companies like Blackmagic Design, this couldn't have been done. Make sure to go check out their website because they've done a lot to help us. Make sure to rate us on iTunes, search for Cutting Room, AOTG, or Art of the Guillotine. And I'd also like to tell you, go check out that post show. Listen to them, great interviews, great roundtable chats, just check it out. In the meantime, enjoy my interview with Fred Raskin. Can you explain how you got into film editing and how you made the transition from assistant to your first feature? Sure. I went to film school at NYU, and everybody who goes to film school, or at least at that time, I think it's probably still the case, goes to film school to become a director. And I realized maybe halfway through my time there, I was at the middle of my sophomore year, that there was this slim possibility that I might not get a directing gig immediately upon graduation, so perhaps I should focus on a craft. And editing was always my favorite part of the process. I would find even when I was directing my student films, I was re- everything I was doing was just so that uh, like I could play around with it in the editing room. And the reality of it is that I find editing to be the most similar to directing of all the crafts out there because you're genuinely crafting performances and you're telling the story and you're figuring out the best way to tell the story and you don't have to deal with the hazards of production and dealing with with actors and other people and so it was I kind of felt like it was the best of both worlds so I focused on that and kind of told all my friends listen I'm going to focus on editing so if you want me to cut your student films just let me know and a bunch of them took me up on it I continued to make stuff myself, but my senior year at NYU, I graduated a semester early, and so that next semester, I was sticking around to actually edit my own senior film, and while I was doing that, one of my friends uh, called me and said, I'm the location manager on a super low-budget indie movie that's shooting in New York. They need an apprentice editor. Are you interested? And I said, sure, absolutely. Like this seems like this is kind of the normal path to get into the editing world. So I did that. It was a movie called Drunks. And the editor, a guy named Hughes Winborn, super nice guy, really talented. I really got my first education in how a cutting room works working on that movie. That movie was being cut on film. So we were syncing dailies. 
I don't know if anyone working on the movie, like any of the assistants, had any experience working before. I remember all of us had copies of the film editing room handbook. We were literally like learning how to sync dailies through what was in the book. I'd done it on my student films, yeah. but I think I sunk up my student films on a scene deck. I don't think I actually did it the proper way. So it was a little trial by fire, but the editor was really cool and he would show a scene after he cut them and kind of get our thoughts. And it was my first education as to how that all works. And he could tell pretty early on how much I really loved what I was doing. And he was like, so you're planning on moving out to L.A., right? And I said, uh, yes, that is my plan. And, and, uh, and he said, well, when you do, I have a number of friends who are working as editors out there, and one of them should be able to hook you up with a job. So that's what I did. A really super close friend of his was a guy named Bob Layton, who is Rob Reiner's editor. And I met with him when I came out, and he introduced me to his assistants. And there's... The way the editing community in Los Angeles works, it's really cool because a lot of people come out to L.A. without knowing anyone. It's like, this is what I want to do, but I don't have any connections. And so generally what people do is they'll just like, okay, you should meet my assistant. And that assistant will say, oh, you know, I've worked with, like, I worked down this down the hallway from a couple of other people who you should meet. And there's just kind of this growing network. And everybody had the same experience. I actually remember through Bob Layton, I met Alan Bell, who was his first assistant, has later gone on to edit The Amazing Spider-Man. He introduced me to a bunch of his friends, one of whom was a woman named Tanya Regal, who had been the first assistant editor on Pulp Fiction. And I remember going out to coffee with her and she said, you know, when I first started getting into the business, a lot of people sat down and had lunch with me and helped me on my way to finding internships and apprenticeships and just kind of getting into the business. And so whenever someone calls me, I try to pay it forward. And that that really stuck with me. And I've attempted to do the same with varying results. But um, (laughs) it was meeting all those people basically led to an internship through one of Alan Bell's connections. And one of the many people he had introduced me to a post-production supervisor at New Line Cinema who told me, you know your stuff and uh, and you got a good head on your shoulders until you get into the union. There's not really anything I can do for you, but let me know when you get into the union. So one of the internships that I had ended up somebody who I was working for free with. She got a job on a low budget kind of a sci-fi fantasy movie called Crossworlds and they needed an apprentice editor and it was paid. And that was the way you get the union is you get a hundred days worth of paid work. So I, uh, I did that, and that got me into the union, and then I called this post-supervisor over at New Line and said, hey, I'm in the union, and he's like, great, we've got this movie about the porn industry in the 70s that's looking for an apprentice editor. I'm going to pass your resume along to them, and I went in for my interview, and I I think they called me the next morning, and were like, can you come in today? (laughs) And that, that that just for for the listeners, that was Boogie's Nights, right? That was Boogie Nights, yeah. Yeah. How did you get into your first feature, which I believe was Annapolis, if I'm pronouncing it right? Yeah, Annapolis. So I worked on Boogie Nights as, I guess I got bumped up to second assistant editor by the time it was done. And then I ended up working as one of Sally Menke's assistants on a couple of movies that uh, that Billy Bob Thornton directed. And when we finished All the Pretty Horses, Punch Drunk Love was a couple weeks into production and Paul Thomas Anderson called me and he 
he remembered me from Boogie Nights, and also he asked me to cut a few little things on the side for him, like a birthday video for his cinematographer. It was while his regular editor was out of town. This had happened kind of while I, I was doing the Billy Bob Thornton movies. So he called me while they were doing Punch Drunk Love. It was just a couple weeks in, and he was like, it's not going to work out between myself and my editor on this movie. I'm in the middle of shooting. I don't have time to conduct interviews and find somebody. If you're available, I would really love it for you to come on and put the movie together while we're shooting. You know, when we finish shooting, I am going to look for someone, but I would really appreciate your help. Of course, I jumped at the chance and was on the movie for, I want to say, about three and a half months. And it was really exciting. I ended up getting an additional editing credit on that movie. And then I went back to assisting because everyone would love to hold out for editing jobs, but there are not as many as there are assistant jobs. And at a certain point, you got to eat. So I went back to assisting and I was assisted on a, a recut of a movie called Imposter at Dimension. And the post-production supervisor from that movie and I got along really well. And he worked on a couple movies at MTV Films. And the head of post there called him and said, we bought a movie called Better Luck Tomorrow at Sundance. We've offered the director the opportunity to make some changes, but he edited the movie himself. But he doesn't really want to actually do the editing anymore. Do you know anybody who might be right for this? And he remembered me. I'd actually shown him my reel at one point. And he was like, I've got the perfect guy for you. He's going to be really enthusiastic and you can probably get him cheap. Um, but, um, so I came on to Better Luck Tomorrow for what was, I think, a really simple two-week recut. And Justin Lin, the director, he and I got along really well. Later on down the line, the studio decided that they wanted to see if he wanted to do any reshoots. And he decided he wanted to reshoot the ending because the ending of the movie was really good, but it didn't quite convey what he wanted it to. So he came up with a new ending that would do just that. And he called me and he said, you know, I'm, uh, they're, they're letting me shoot a couple new scenes. I'd really love to have you come on and cut them. So I, I of course, did that. And I think that actually happened while I was assisting on Kill Bill. I took two weeks off to uh, do that. So we got along really well. And when Justin got his first studio movie, which was Annapolis for Disney, he called me and he was like, I'm really going to try to get you onto this. And it was a huge honor and a huge vote of confidence. Um, I guess from the studio's perspective, if there's one guy who you can pretty easily get rid of without changing anything, it's the editor. <laughs> 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 so it uh, turns out this kid has no clue what he's doing. Then um, we can find somebody else who does. and The footage will all still be there. But I guess I ended up doing okay because I made it through to the end. And the next thing Justin did was the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. And he brought me along onto that. And The rest is yeah, history. And, 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 and then, yeah, exactly. For Fast and the Furious, it's all about the driving scenes. So can mm -hmm. you give me a sense of how you approach to editing the race scenes? The approach to the editing was actually dictated by the way the movies were shot. Justin would design all of the action sequences. He would previs all of the major sequences. The previs had everything. It had digital versions of the actors. It had all of the wide shots. So Justin plans everything out. And then those sequences get broken down like, okay, main unit is going to shoot this, second unit is going to shoot this, and the visual effects then gets in, they determine how they're going to do some of this stuff, because it wasn't all as simple as driving. I mean, uh, the thing that a lot of people don't know about those movies is that 
99% of the cars in the movie, and it's probably more than 99%, are real. Um, there's very little CG car work happening in, in those movies. Like, that driving is all really being done. The CG elements are usually backgrounds behind the green screens. So all, all of this stuff is planned out before shooting. And generally what happens is the second unit is usually ahead of main unit. In fact, by necessity, they tend to be. So they'll shoot all of the stuff with the cars where you don't see the actors first. And that's what we will put together first. So we'll put together the sequence without close-ups. Sometimes we've got the close-ups from the previous that we will just insert in there. Other times we don't have anything and we just have to make it work. Like in Tokyo Drift, we had a lot less previs, so we really just had to make the sequence work without shots of the actors. And then they would take that sequence and they would bring it to set when they were shooting the shots of the actors driving. And that would inform what the actors were going to do. Like, here's the cars going this way, so okay, you got to turn the wheel to the right. Once that material was shot, then we would cut it into the sequences that we had done and oftentimes discovered that now that we've got the shots of the actors, the edits that we'd made without them weren't quite working, so we would have to recut the sequence once the shots of the actors were in there. That was basically the process. I mean, in terms of, you know, making it as exciting as possible, a lot of that is just kind of going with your gut and just what feels right. Now, you were involved in the previous part. Like, did you help cut some of the stuff together or was it just... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. On Tokyo Drift, there was remarkably little previs. I think there were only two sequences that were previs and I cut one of them and my co-editor had cut the other. On Fast and Furious, there were three major action sequences, two of which were pretty much fully previs and I came on early to cut the previs and then with Fast Five, uh, Kelly Matsumoto, who was one of our co-editors, I think she cut all of the previs for Fast Five, which involved basically the opening sequence and the finale. So that material would get used when, oh, actually, you know what? There was more previs. The bus flip at the beginning of the movie, that was a last-minute additional shoot. That was not intended to be in the movie for all time. It really happened that we had a really successful test screening, and it was like, clearly the audience wants this also, so why don't we give it to them? So that sequence, it was shot so late in the game that there was no room for error, so it was thoroughly previs. I would be working with both Justin and the second unit director, like, how do we get these shots? And the second unit director was like, this is where we're going to be able to put cameras, so we need to be cognizant of that. I would ask for shots that were like, you're never going to actually be able to get this shot, so <laughs> let's find stuff that we can really do and that's how we did it there are shots in the previous that i was like you're never going to be able to get this shot but okay we'll put it in there and see what happens and somehow they managed to get it it's remarkable now i have to ask are you a fan of bullet oh of course and did that influence the team at all when you're doing the previous work not specifically i feel like before we started annapolis i think i watched every boxing movie ever made and i would pull clips from all of them like look at this terrific shot, this great fight sequence. And the same thing happened before Tokyo Drift with regard to car chases, uh, except I wasn't involved with that because I literally like finished working on Annapolis and the next week I was on Tokyo Drift. So I didn't have time to be researching that stuff, but someone else compiled those things. So we had tons of DVDs. I know that the bullet car chase was definitely in there. When I looked at Fast and Furious, the, where they go down the uh -huh. hill at the end, there was a uh -huh. lot of things that I was like, wow, that looks a lot like the way they would have done it in Bullet. It had Bullet been you, with you, modern you mean cars. Tokyo Drift? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Tokyo Drift, sorry. The, the race, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I watched all of them back to back on right. the weekend, so <laughs> they're blurring together. 
to give credit where it's due, yeah. the sequence was cut by Kelly Matsumoto, actually, okay. not me. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Justin had seen all of these things. So he was certainly aware of everything. But what's interesting about these, these movies is they're entirely his vision. And I don't actually think that... I think you can tell the difference between a Justin Lin action sequence and another director's. I think the action sequences in Fast Five are very different from the action sequences in the Fast and the Furious movie. And not to say nothing negative about either of them. They're just different. Justin's got a really specific style that I think is in keeping with the way he shoots his dialogue scenes. Like, it really all feels like the product of one filmmaker. It's funny that you would say that because uh, one of my questions that I actually wrote down was, there's actually a distinct difference between the styles. And I was wondering what your involvement in the editing process for that was. There's going to be certain amounts that the director is going to put in. There's going to be certain amounts that the DP will put in, the stunt team. But as an editor, where did you begin with helping with the style? The style of the action sequences, you mean? Yeah, or or the films themselves. Because Tokyo Drift, for example, had a completely different opening to any of the other ones, right? Like they start with the school, whereas the other ones tend to Mm -hmm. start with races or things like that. It was all Justin's vision. And what's funny was, I remember we put that sequence together. There was a song that we used that the sequence was edited to. And at the last minute, that song became unavailable. And they had to swap it out for another song after we had locked the cut. And what's funny is you never know what to watch the movie. Like, it kind of works. That was not the song that it was edited to. But, I mean, my involvement, you know, I I look at the footage and I just kind of do what feels right. And always with a sequence like that where it's kind of montage-y, you put it together first without music and kind of get the shots in the order you want them to be in. Then you add the music in and refine the cut based on that. And I feel like with that sequence, all of the refinements happened with Justin in the room. In Bullet, there was no music during the race scenes. It was all the engines that spoke. Right. In this, there's lots of music throughout the film. And I feel that it's almost its own character in the films. Mm -hmm. What were you listening to while you were cutting it? And how did you allow the music to influence your editing or not influence your editing or you know with the action sequences i wouldn't say that the music influenced the way they were edited action is action the goal always is to get it to work without music and then you find the right cue that goes in there and you edit that cue and make it work as best as you can to fit the scene i don't think there are any sequences there certainly not in terms of the action where the music choices influenced how the scene was edited That said, we were very involved. Like, we had a temp music editor named Sherry Ozeki who cut some stuff for us on Tokyo Drift to really make those sequences sing. I mean, that was the shortest schedule, certainly for a movie of that size. I believe it was seven months from the day they started shooting till when we had to be finished because it was coming out a couple weeks later. It was a conscious effort. Like, we had to nail down all of the action sequences first before we could deal with refining the body of the movie because the visual effects companies all needed to get their work started. So we did all of that first. Sherry would cut temp music for us, and then those sequences would go off to our composer, Brian Tyler. He would give them sort of the same feel that the temp music had, but it was much more unified and it felt consistent. It was clearly all the work of one composer and there's a uniform feeling and there are themes actually in Tokyo Drift that continue into Fast and Furious. So he would score it after we'd cut temp music to it and then we would get to the mix stage and then the real battle would begin between music or sound effects. And it's always a tricky balance. We never want one of them to overpower the other completely. As was the case in Bullet, the engine sounds have their own musical quality and they do propel the sequence forward 
even without the music. But you also don't want to kill the audience with engine sounds because you get engine sounds and tire squeals and, you know, these things can be painful. And so there's always the first pass is always painfully effects heavy. And it's like, we're really hurting the audience here. And so you always step back and say, okay, we need to create some peaks and valleys here. And let's not hurt the audience so much. Let's find moments when we can actually pull out the effects and let the music take it. And I mean, I think that we really nailed it with Fast Five. Like the mix on the action sequences in that movie is about as perfect as we could hope for. It's just a really nice balance. There are nice moments where we carved out holes. There were moments where the effects were going really heavy and then we like cut the effects off completely and like, let's just let this cool moment happen with the music and then, okay, we're, we're going to bring the effects back. So it doesn't become so taxing on the audience's ears. And I have to give one of my co-editors, Chris Wagner, a lot of credit for that idea. I mean, he's done a ton of big action movies and he was very cognizant of this being a problem. And so he was always the first person to say, okay, we need to pull back a little bit on some of this stuff. I'd like to jump to Django Unchained and your work with Quentin Tarantino. Sure. The first question I have to ask that's sort of on everyone's mind is in regards to Sally Manke's passing. Right. It's a very unfortunate passing, and I was wondering how did this transition work for you and Tarantino, especially since he had a long history with Sally, and they almost had like a, a shorthand. Mm-hmm. How was it building this relationship with him from the ground up? Well, it wasn't completely from the ground up because I'd been an assistant on Kill Bill, so I knew him. We would run into each other all the time through the years. You know, he owns the New Beverly Cinema, and I am a regular there, and I would see him there a few times a year, you know, at random screenings, and we'd always chat for a little bit. When he and Sally finished the rough cuts of both Death Proof and Inglorious Bastards, he called me and said, I'd really love to have you come to the screening. With Bastards, it was, <laughs> I specifically remember him saying, so we've just finished it. I want you to come in and look at it on the Avid. And I was like, you've put me in a really awkward position here because there is no movie to which I am more looking forward this year and you want me to watch it on a 35-inch standard definition TV screen. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, no one feels your pain more than I do. (laughs) But I will tell you that you actually have the potential to have an impact on how the movie comes out. (laughs) And I was like, I wasn't actually going to say no. (laughs) So he kind of kept me in the family there. So we had a good relationship. And when he finished... The screenplay for Django, he does, he calls it publication day. When he finishes the screenplay, he prints out God knows how many copies and calls a bunch of his friends and is like, hey, come on by, take a copy, grab some food and a glass of champagne. And that was the first time I'd made the list. I took it home and voraciously read it and told him how much I loved it. And what was neat was actually he finished the script. Publication day happened, I think, three days before the release of Fast Five. So he emailed me. It was the Saturday night that Fast Five, Fast Five opened on Friday, and on Saturday he emailed me to say, I got a hold of Prince of Tokyo Drift and Fast and Furious. I'm watching them in my private screening room tonight before going to a midnight show of Fast Five. (laughs) (laughs) And his producer told me, I think I know why he's doing this. (laughs) I think he's evaluating someone's work when he asked me to cut it. You know, it's just, this is the greatest honor. And I I mean, I, I was... So we're, we're talking about, without question, the most influential filmmaker of his generation. And I would also say probably the most important, this is a phenomenal filmmaker. And so getting the opportunity to cut a movie with him, I mean, who wouldn't jump at this chance? It was incredibly daunting. I mean, Sally was a terrific editor. And so having to fill her shoes, it's like, you know, I'm just I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can 
and God willing, that will be enough. <laughs> well, the, the thing about about his work is he it's exciting because he's taking risks, which is rare yeah. with directors, right? Like Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, splitting a film up like that, Inglorious Bastards, doing The Grindhouse. It's all things that are risky for a director to do, and that's what's exciting oh, yeah. about it too. Because if, if it works, it's fantastic. If it doesn't, it's like, okay, well, let's see the next one, see what works. Oh, absolutely. And it's even more exciting to be in the position that I was in, just getting to see him come up with ideas on the fly. Not entirely on the fly. Like, he'd come in with an idea like, I want to try this. I don't know if it's going to work, but let's see. And the number of things that didn't work, I don't even know that I can name any of them. This is far and away his most linear movie. You really get the story told from beginning to end. There are a handful of moments of flashbacks but you'll get like maybe a two minute flashback and then you'll get back to the story at hand. There's nothing where like a major portion of the movie is happening in a different time period from where the rest of it is happening. You're really just following this one character's journey from the beginning of the movie to the end. That said, he did some interesting structural things within scenes where he would just come in and say, yeah, you know what? I want to try taking the middle of the scene and putting it first. I think the audience is going to get this. And the sequence I'm referring to specifically is in the Don Johnson sequence, the Spencer Big Daddy Bennett and his regulators, which is kind of the precursor to the Ku Klux Klan. The way that scene plays out structurally is very interesting. It's not how it was in the script. It was just an idea that he came in with and it just worked remarkably well. And it was the kind of thing that, like, I don't know that I would have the balls to try something like that on my own. Now, because you assisted Menke, did you, mm-hmm. I guess, what did you learn from assisting her that helped you on Django? One of the main things that I've learned from a number of the editors that I worked with, and she was really great at this, was, you know, when she finished a scene, she would bring us all in and get our thoughts about it. And if we had any issues, she would talk to us about them. And one of her favorite things, it's really funny, like, there are a handful of edits in Django where things don't match at all, but you don't really notice. And Quentin would always say, that's a Sally cut right there. (laughs) Like, it's something she was always proudest of when she could make something that, like, it just doesn't match at all from one side of the cut to the other. But it feels like it does. And I actually remember on All the Pretty Horses, her bringing us in and saying, look at this. Like, this doesn't match at all. But it works. But, yeah, but it worked beautifully. That was something that we tried to keep consistent. Like, she gave me a few scenes to edit on All the Pretty Horses, and I would do that. And then she'd take a look at them and tell me what she thought of it. If she made changes to it, she'd explain why she did. And this was all really helpful to me just in learning the craft and kind of what's important because I think oftentimes you want to use all of the footage that's been shot. You got a really terrific filmmaker. Uh, he's shooting it for a reason. We should use everything. And she was really good at boiling things down to the essentials. I think for her, it, it was really character was king. You always want to be focused on the characters and their journey, and that's the most important thing. Everything else kind of falls by the wayside as long as you get that right. I read in an article that Tarantino likes to rent a house in Hollywood to cut in. Did you continue this tradition with this film? He did, and thankfully he decided to rent one uh, eight blocks from my home. So so I got to walk the works for uh, three quarters of the year, so it was nice. (laughs) <laughs> now, how, what kind of effect do you think that would have on your editing? Because you're no longer going to the studios to cut, but you're going to a house. 
You know, I don't actually know that the space has any great impact on the work that's done. I guess it just feels a little bit less corporate for whatever that's worth. Certainly, there's no danger of studio execs coming in at any time. So I guess that's a positive. But since the Weinstein Company doesn't really have a studio lot, that's not something that we would have been afraid of anyway. It's a nice atmosphere. I mean, literally, like, you'll walk into the kitchen and somebody will be doing laundry. It just kind of feels like home. And so it created a nice environment. This was a shorter schedule than most. So we didn't always have the luxury of, okay, everybody, we're going to all eat lunch together. Like, it happened a few times, and it was nice when it happened. You know, it just kind of creates a nice family environment, which is good for everyone. I mean, uh, my crew was, was fantastic on this movie. Just all really good people, really talented, able to deal with some near insurmountable challenges. And so I'd say they're probably, to a degree, being in this environment, probably help matters. Early in Tarantino's career, he when he was mm-hmm. talking about uh, Sally, he would mm-hmm. say that he liked female editors because they're more nurturing uh, for the right. editing process. Do you think he's changed since then, or how do you think that might have influenced your relationship with Tarantino? Uh, you know, I don't actually know what the answer to that question would be. I can say that the crew was heavily female, so there was a lot of feminine energy around when we brought people in to show scenes. It was my first assistant is a guy. One of our avid assistants is a guy. Everyone else is women, from the post-supervisor to the PA to like all the film assistants. And so I'd like to think that that kind of helped continue that feeling so it wasn't too much of a shock. You would always get a woman's reaction to stuff whenever we'd show things. But, you know, I mean, I'm a movie geek. When I was in college, I was on the editorial staff of Fangoria magazine. When I was a kid, I worked in both a movie theater and a video store. Like, I'm sure there were major differences, but probably in a good way. I mean, I think there were times when, like, he'd come in and just want to talk about movies. You know, sometimes new movies, sometimes old movies. And there would be moments where it's like, all right, we just spent an hour discussing Hammer Horror movies. Perhaps we should get back to <laughs> to cutting the movie. <laughs> but that's, that's just but, it. Uh, he's, he's got like this encyclopedic knowledge of film. Oh, yes, he does. If you think that you know about movies, spend an hour with Quentin and you'll discover <laughs> that you know nothing. <laughs> yeah, you know, like a, a, just the tip of the iceberg compared to him. Like when I think about certain films, he might reference a film within the film. So Kill Bill's referencing, uh, you know, various styles. How did this affect you in the editing room? Because I know that he would bring it up in the script, but did things change in the editing room? Or, like, how did that affect your cutting? Right. Uh, You know, I don't actually think that that had a major impact. Because I think, yes, his influences are certainly there, and they did just that. They influenced him. But the movie is very much him. Like, this is the product of one man's imagination. And there's never a moment where he would say, all right, cut this the way they cut this scene. But with the exception of there was one sequence in the movie, there's an action sequence that he got the idea for how to do it from the trailer for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And we did watch that trailer and kind of see what they did. But what they had done worked in the trailer and it didn't quite work in the sequence, and I actually think the sequence is better for it, because he kind of went his own way with it. So it influenced how he shot it, but ultimately 
I think we came up with something a little different for how it was finally put together. There's a big shootout that happens rather late in the movie where the shots of our hero are all in slow-mo and the shots of the people he's fighting with are all, uh, actually I think they're shot at 23 frames per second, and kind of contrasting those two going back and forth between them and the effect that it has is pretty neat. He doesn't imitate, he innovates, right? Like he takes the idea and he builds (laughs) on it. I mean, the way that I like to describe it is that I feel like a lot of filmmakers, they'll go about making a movie and ignore everything that's come before. Like, I don't want to watch this other movie that might have something similar to mine. I don't want to be influenced by anything else. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to feel like I'm ripping something off. Because of that, there are a lot of filmmakers who are kind of constantly reinventing the wheel and not moving forward. Quentin knows everything that's come before. He's incredibly well-versed in it. And so it's not like... Even making Reservoir Dogs, he wasn't making that as a first-time filmmaker. He was making it as a guy who knew every movie that had come before it. And now, okay, what can I do next? What's the next step to that? How do I change up the structure to make it interesting to the audience? And so I feel like he's really pushing the medium forward in a way that very few other filmmakers are. Now, when Tina Hirsch first met Quentin Tarantino, Mm -hmm. she said that he was a ball of energy and ideas. And I was wondering how Mm -hmm. you work with that or harness it to in the editing suite to affect your editing or to work with your edits? <laughs> you know, it's, it's really funny. Probably the thing that I was most frightened of before he showed up was, am I going to be fast enough for him? Because Sally was very fast. And I was well aware of how quickly his mind could work. And there were definitely moments where he would be coming up with things faster than I could do them. And I was racing to get them done. And ultimately, there was a point when I asked him, I was like, am I like way too slow for you? He's like, no, 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 you're doing great. It's actually good because sometimes if things take a little bit longer, like it gives me the opportunity to kind of stop and step back and think for a moment. But I don't think anybody could cut as fast as he thinks. You know, ultimately, he seemed happy with the work that I'd done. So I guess I was able to keep up as much as was necessary. Now, he's also huge into music and has, similar to film, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of music, apparently. I haven't yep. seen him talk about music, but, you know, when he's got the script ready, he knows the sounds and the music that he likes. Did he have music ready for you in the, the cutting room? Sort of. I would hazard a guess that 75% of the songs in the movie, he knew what they were going to be before he started shooting. That said, there were very few of them that I had access to, because he was very cognizant of the idea that, like, while I was doing my assembly, if I used a piece of music that he wanted in there and I laid it in differently from how he envisioned it, it would completely throw him from being able to watch the sequence. And so he was like, just cut without music until I get in there. So with the exception of musical montages, which I don't really know how you cut those without music, pretty much everything was being cut dry which was a good challenge because, as I said, like if you can make it work without music, it's definitely going to work with music. Sometimes you can't make it work without music and you put music in and it, and it works. Getting everything to work without music is a big challenge. So I think that helped us make the scenes better. But that said, once we got into it, sometimes we wouldn't even be finished with a scene before he'd say, all right, I want to try this piece of music here. Some of these cues are coming off of albums that he's had in his vinyl collection for 30 years, if not longer. And he'll have my assistant import the song into the Abbot off of the vinyl album. Myself and the post supervisor, we were like, we need a turntable in here before he gets in. Yeah. And sure enough, he showed up with a stack of records and we had the turntable set up. So you will occasionally hear like little pops coming off of the needle of the record player. 
which is cool because there's a song in this movie that he's like, I've been listening to this cue for the last 25 years before I ever made a movie. I knew I wanted to use this song in a movie and I finally got to use it. And it's coming off of the album that he listened to for 25 years wanting to use it. It's pretty neat. Now, I heard that Django was edited up to the last minute. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, when was the film actually finished for your role? We finished mixing last week. I believe it was last Wednesday. When you're getting close to a deadline like that, how do you keep your composure under so much stress and so much pressure to get it finished? You know, like I said, I had a really terrific team of assistants. We knew what we had to do. And it's relatively easy to make changes on the Avid. It's getting those changes conveyed to everyone else. How does this impact the DI? How does this impact the sound department? It's all of those things that would seem to be daunting, but my assistants were just really on their game and made everything happen. We finished on Wednesday. We probably made our last change a couple days before then, but the crew was up to the challenge. There was, despite the ludicrous hours we were working, the stress of, are we going to finish? Certainly, like by that point, it had gone away. The pressure was its highest before we had completed a first pass on the movie. Once we had a complete pass, then it came about, okay, now let's have some fun and figure out (laughs) what stuff we need and what we don't. Now, you mentioned earlier that when you did Annapolis and Pass 5 and what have you, you watched as much as you could. Did you do the same thing with Tarantino? Did you watch like all his previous films? I know you'd you'd seen them originally, but did you rewatch them? I rewatched most of them just to kind of study their work. I watched a bunch of Sergio Corbucci westerns because uh, that was probably the biggest influence on this movie as far as one filmmaker is concerned. He, he directed the original Django and a ton of other movies. I mean, what was what's really fortunate was that maybe, I want to say maybe six or seven months ago, the American Cinematheque did a big festival of spaghetti westerns. So I was there as often as I possibly could be. Like, as soon as I left work, I headed to the Egyptian to see the Hellbenders. And, I mean, it's some really, really great stuff. Again, how much these things specifically influence the way the movie's edited, not so much. A lot of that is really just the way his brain works. But you definitely see themes and certain ideas, like the way one character will be killed. And it's like, oh, okay, I see where this came from. (laughs) But he finds something new to do with this. It's really neat. Now, I have one last question to ask you. Sure. And I ask all the editors that uh, I interview this, and that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? You know, I would, uh, I think I'm going to go with Phantasm 3 here. Are you familiar with the Phantasm series? No, no, if you could, if you could give me a sense. These are remarkably imaginative horror movies. Mm-hmm. I think the first one was from 79, and the second one was in the, uh, the mid, maybe 87, and then the third one was uh, a few years later. But, I mean, big influence on the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Those movies would not exist without Phantasm. Like I say, incredibly imaginative, great ideas. The performances are not always stellar. The second one is probably the best of them. It's the most legitimate of a movie. They had a big budget. I actually think maybe Universal put it out. But the third one is just a blast. Like, it's just the plot of, of these movies revolves around this guy referred to as the tall man who goes into a small town and starts killing people and 
crushing their bodies down so that they can perform tasks on what appears to be another planet. Like, it's really out there. Our main character is, is a guy whose family was killed by the tall man, and so our heroes kind of follow him. Or Like, in each movie, they, they're, they're following him to a new town or going from town to town, tracking him down. And by the third one, you've got a group of people who've all lost their families to, at the hands of the tall man. Well, I'd like to thank you for letting me interview you. Certainly. So that was my interview with Fred. Now, we're going to have another podcast released just before the new year, and it's going to be our wrap-up of the Be Real interview. In the meantime, I'd like to thank Fred for allowing me to interview him, Jeremy Weinstein for getting me in touch with Fred, and, of course, our sponsors, Black Magic Design. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>